Well, I just want to welcome visitors, um, welcome to our little humble church and those who have been away for a while. We've come back tanned. Most of us, most of us are jealous, especially myself, who cannot get a tan. That's for sure. But we're in the book of Philippians today, and we haven't been in the book of Philippians. Some of you have been following it along. It's been a long journey. We made our way through the book of Philippians. And those of you who are visiting, so I thought it'd just be fair, maybe just to give you a little bit of a background, what we've been covering through the book of Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter 4 this morning. But what we've been covering through Philippians thus far, and what the Philippians is all about, is about this wonderful letter between Paul and his church that he shares this special, this special love with them. There's this bond, a special kind of love that we will see even from our whole one verse this morning. I have to apologize to some of you. I did tell you I was going to do five verses today, but I couldn't get past the one verse. So I'm sorry about that. You're going to have to hear me try to pronounce these two ladies' names next time, okay? All right. So here's what we see is that Paul's desire for this church is that he desires for the church to be together in unity, to run the race together, to, to be transformed in Christ's likeness as they make their way to the celestial city. Paul's love for this church was so deep. He, he loved this church so much that he desired for them to grow so much so that he would even put his joy and love and yearning to be with Christ aside. He said in chapter 1, verse 23 to 24, I'm hard-pressed between both directions, having a desire to be with Christ, which is much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul's affection for this church was also revealed by Paul warning the church against false teachers, against false brethren, against bad examples who would bring disunity in the church, disruption in what God was actually doing in the Philippians church. Out of love for them, he speaks about these very things. I'll just give you some examples in chapter 2. And by the way, he's not just speaking of the false teachers, the false preachers, the false converts, and the bad examples about the unity and the disunity, in fact, that they can bring. It's also about within the body of Christ, the people themselves. Let me give you some examples. In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul said this, Make my joy complete. How? By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent for one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, Paul, there are many verses I can share with you about this, but I think we get the idea. Paul had this affection and this love for the body of Christ in his church that he would give himself away for them. His ultimate goal for Paul is that the church of, of Philippi 
will look at Paul and join Paul and say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This was Paul's affection. And the last time, for those of you who were with me, we looked at chapter 3, verse 20 to 21, and we saw three things. We saw the Christian hope, one, the, the position of our hope. That is the citizenship that we have in Christ Jesus. That's in verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 20, B and C. We see the person of our hope. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 21, we see the possession of our hope. And that is our heavenly body. And we spoke about this in length. For those of us who are getting older, that heavenly body becomes more and more precious. All right? Amen? The young ones, you don't get it yet. That's okay. If God wills that you'll get older and pains and agonies and troubles will start to happen in your life. And, and then the new body starts to sound really, really good. So we find ourselves in chapter 4, and there's this lengthy thing that Paul speaks about here. It begins from chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 9, in a real practical sense. Paul wants to expose to the Christians of Philippi, how do we actually now live this life? How do we do this? How do we live as citizens? How do we expose Christ in our lives? How are we going to be the witnesses that so Brother John said that we're going to be doing next week when we door knock? How do we do that in a practical way? And so we're in chapter 4, and I want to read verse 1 for you. Let me read it for you, and then we can expound on it. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. First, let me just lay out something. We know this, that through the scriptures in many portions and in many ways, we are told to stand firm. We are told to guard the faith, to work hard, to seek the Lord, to run to the point of exhaustion. That's where we are told throughout scriptures. Why, brethren? Because we are fighting a spiritual battle. We are fighting a battle. We have a sinful flesh that clings to us and wants to bring us down. We have a sinful world that wants to put us down. And we have a sinful angel whose desire is, do, is to do nothing but to bring the church of Jesus Christ down. We carry it around with us. So how do we cultivate strength? How do we encourage one another to keep this unity of the faith together. Apostle Paul doesn't want the Philippian church and, and neither if we can speak for ourselves to enter into the kingdom of God and Jesus say to us, well done, good and average servant. You were faithful in a little and worse in a lot more. We don't want that, do we? We want Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were united together, you fought together, and you stood together. So this section here I've entitled, Run Together for the Gospel. I have one point 
shockingly enough for you. Just one point, but I'm going to have five headings under here. Because what I want to do is lay the foundation for next time as to how do we encourage one another to do this. And the Apostle Paul, who is the Apostle of Love, does this very thing in this one verse. One. He says, Beloved. Two. He calls them brethren. Three. He says, I long to see you. Four. He says, you are my crown. And five, he says, you are my joy. Oh, that we would hear these words of God. That we would be like this and we will see the floodgates of heaven open up through this little local church and to the ends of the earth. So here's the Apostle Paul and he begins by saying, Therefore, Of course, this serves as a conclusion to what he had just said in chapter 3, verse 12 to 21. In fact, some scholars say chapter 4, verse 1 should really be chapter 3, verse 22. Because it is a conclusion of what Paul has been saying in his argument. His desire has not changed and he continues to encourage the believers. He says, therefore, brethren, since your citizenship is in heaven and it's not of this earth, and Christ awaits for you with open arms... And he's going to give you a new body. Therefore, for this reason, brothers and sisters, stand firm. And he gives the command. But before Paul gives the command, he is so humble. So humble. So we want to consider this compassionate Paul. And so the title of this sermon, I've called the actual sermon as a subtitle underneath, Run Together for the Gospel, is the compassionate Christian. The compassionate Christian. How do we approach? How do we encourage one another? I pray that our ears are open and our hearts are willing to receive. The Apostle Paul says, Beloved, beloved. He has done through the whole epistle, nothing but this, with the affection of love, calling these people beloved. Before he gives a command, before he gives a practical thing, Paul always shows grace. I want you to understand that. My beloved, he does not threaten them. He does not judge them. He does not get angry at them. He does not point at their failures. But he says, my beloved, you are mine. There is one thing that when we say, good morning, beloved, there is another thing when we say, good morning, My beloved, it's personal, it's intimate. My beloved speaks of a deeper meaning than a person having a friend with one another and enjoying each other's company and playing pool together and playing soccer together or playing tennis together. No, this word here reveals of unity and compassion in God's community. It reveals of a family gathering, you are my beloved. You are my beloved. This is what Paul is saying. Uh, This word could be likened in two siblings, well, in a perfect world, where they really love one another and they cannot get enough of one another and they want to serve one another with nothing in return. 
It is supernatural. It's out of this world. And Paul has this kind of love when he says, Beloved to the church. Now, I want to take it a bit deeper, if I may. Please listen. This actual word, beloved, many of you know it is what? Agape. This word, agape, is used when the Father from heaven spoke and said what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This kind of love is not natural. It is not superficial. It is eternal from God the Father to the Son. It is not puffed up. It does not seek its own glory. This love is based on the purity of the person, the object of whom I'm saying I love. God the Father loved Jesus with a pure love. Jesus in God the Father's eyes was purer and more brighter than 10,000 sons. He looks at Jesus and says, He is my beloved son. He is beautiful in my eyes. I love him with pure love. I love him with an unconditional love. And Paul uses the same kind of love and he says that to the Philippian church. Oh, my beloved. His expression and expression towards these believers at Philippi is that I love you with an unconditional love. You have problems, you have trials, well, join the club. But I love you. This is as if Paul himself is writing this letter and he's saying to the Philippians church, this is my beloved church in whom I'm well pleased. What a love. What an affection. He took pleasure in them. The way the Father loves the Son and took pleasure in Him. The Apostle Paul says, You are my beloved church. I love you this way. Oh, if we love one another like this, if we can say, You are my beloved, hell will hate you all the more. If we can say, my beloved, the devils will shake. And hell will rise up against you. And the gospel will be magnified all the more in and through you. If we can encourage one another like that. My beloved, before I tell you what's happening, my beloved, I love you. And if you look there, it says, My beloved and brethren, let me share this with you. They are plural words. What does that mean? It means that Paul didn't say, My beloved, sorry, my beloved, sorry, my beloved. No, what that means is that Paul had in mind every single believer in the church. In fact, if you know that Paul has been in prison, he hasn't seen these people for like 10 years. He doesn't even know some of them. And yet he has such a deep affection for them. That's our first sub-point under my point. My beloved. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? He says, my beloved brethren. My beloved brethren, this connection that he has with them, he says it over and over again in this epistle, beloved brethren, 
These are those who have submitted to Christ Jesus. What a privilege to say, brother. Calling someone a brother in Christ, it's not like we say in our time, I can only say, speak for our time. Paul wasn't saying this flippantly, like to say, hey, bro, how's it going? That's not what Paul is using here. It meant a whole lot more. A brethren to Paul, it meant that these people were loved by God. Paul didn't just flippantly, or okay, I need to fill in this letter and just put words for the sake of filling in the letter. No, every every. Every comma, every jot, every tittle, every full stop, every affection of Paul, every time he says love, every time he says brethren, it is true. Why do we know it's true? Because God, the Holy Spirit, superintended Paul's hand. And so when Paul says, my brethren, he is talking to believers. And it means they are loved by God, purchased by Christ. They are owned by him. They, their home is in heaven and the triune God is their reward. You are my family, Paul is saying. You're not just my family. You are my brothers. You are my brothers. By the way, when it says brothers, we are saying sisters as well, okay? We, you are my brethren, I don't know if there's a word for sisterin. I don't think there is. Okay? But he's talking about both male and female. But I want you to notice something here of the humility of this apostle who has been given such authority by God to preach the gospel and to be an apostle. He says, I am a brethren. You are my brethren. What does that mean? It means that the apostle Paul humbled himself. He says, yes, I'm an apostle. Yes, I am a shepherd. But before I was an under-shepherd, before I am an under-shepherd, I am your brother in Christ. And that says a lot to some of us who are in leadership. Does it not? We have an office and we teach and we preach Jesus Christ and Him alone crucified. But if your leaders are not an example to you, something is wrong. If your leaders see themselves as high and lifted up, something is wrong because they are first your brethren. They are first your brethren. And Paul saw himself as the least of the apostles, the chief of sinners, the wretched sinner that I am. But this is applicable to all of us, is it not? How do we see ourselves this morning? Do we see ourselves low, humble, or do we see ourselves on this high horse, high and lifted up? Look at me. I deserve to sit here. I deserve to be served here. I don't like what you did there. Is that what we see with the Apostle Paul? Well, let me give you a gentle warning. There are a few verses in 1 John. I remember preaching on this. I did a whole series. It's online if you ever want to listen to it. God bless your heart. It's very long. But I came to this verse, and I'm going to read it to you, First John chapter 3, verse 14, and, and a couple of others, which is in chapter 3, verse 10, and, and chapter 4. The Apostle John wrote this in chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. 
He who does not love abides in death. What does that mean? It means that if you're born again out of that new nature, out of the flowing beauty and love that Christ has given you, it will be given to others. And the Apostle John wrote, if you don't love the brethren, you're abiding death. In other words, if you don't love the brethren, there is no reflection of the love of Christ in you towards your brother and sister in Christ in your local church. You are not saved. That's a, that's a, that's a peri- pretty serious thing, right? I mean, I didn't write it. God is the author of it. And so this, this man said to me, you can't preach that. I know brothers overseas and I know brothers here who don't belong to us. Are you saying they belong? Well, of course. Of course he belongs to a local church. How does anybody know that I love anyone else? I mean, I have brothers in Uganda, I'm sure, and in Africa, but they have no idea that I exist. So can they love me? Well, no, it's impossible. So when the Apostle John wrote this, he was talking to a local congregation to say, if you don't love, if you don't see that love and affection towards one another, you're abiding in death. In fact, the truth is not in you. You are not born again. And so this this man said to me, well, I know a man who has been born again for 25 years. He doesn't go to church, but he loves everybody. I said, does he love me? Does he serve me? Does he know who I am? He says, that's impossible for him to know you. I said, then how can he be assured of his salvation? You see? Our security is in Christ. But the assurance of that salvation is always been manifested through the local body of Christ and how we love and how we serve. So that brings us to the third point. So the Apostle Paul says says to, to the church, Therefore, my beloved brethren... He can't stop there. It's like it's almost like trying to muzzle an ox. He can't stop. He says, my beloved brethren, I long to see. He says, I long to see you. It's not enough for me to say, I love you. It's not enough for me to say, you are my family. You are my brethren. No, I want to see you. Do you see that affection? I want to see you. It's easy to say, good morning, brother, good morning, beloved. I love you, brother. I love you, beloved. And that's great. Please keep doing that. Can you please text me and tell me that you love me, all right? After this sermon, I'm expecting lots of texts. <laughs> it's wonderful. But here's a question. Are you yearning to have fellowship with one another? Are you yearning to see one another? Are you yearning for that? Are you yearning to get to know one another? This word that appears here and in two other places in this epistle, and it describes an intense passion, great affection with effectual desire, yearning for someone with the implication of need. Could you imagine that? If that's in your heart as a brother, I yearn for you. I need you, sister. I need you, brother. That's the yearning that Paul has. Let me explain a little bit more what this yearning is like. We read in 2 Peter, the apostle writes this, like a newborn baby, 2 Peter 2.2, long for the pure milk 
of the word. Longing for the pure milk of the word. This longing, of course, is talking about the word of God. But we need to understand something. That longing is for the sustenance of the word. It brings fulfillment, satisfaction, and it brings joy. And Paul says, in like manner to the church, my beloved brethren, I long for you. You are my affection. You bring me satisfaction. It is you who brings joy to my heart. You fulfill me. This kind of longing is like a father who goes on a long journey and he leaves behind his children and his beloved wife who in the real world he really loves her, okay? And he loves her unconditionally and he leaves them behind to go for work for a period of time only to long for them. And could you imagine his longing? Could you imagine the tears in his heart? And then could you imagine the reunion when he sees his beloved children and he sees his wife? What does he do? Does he say, hello, dear? Hello, my little child. How have you been? No, that's not what he would do. If you understand what this longing is, he would hug them and he would want not ever let them go again. That's the longing. Apostle Paul loves them this way. We don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to say, could you imagine saying this to your lovely family, child, daughter, son? You fill in the blanks. You know what? I love you. I love you so much. But I think our love works best from a distance. I, I love you so much. But it's best that we don't really talk to one another that much. Because every time we talk, we fight. Well, welcome to the club. Okay. There is trouble in the church, brothers and sisters. We're going to see that next time with two ladies, which I won't pronounce, Marco, not yet. I've got to still learn how to say them. There is problems. We don't want to say, well, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, we love Christ and that's good enough. But because you don't dress the way I dress, because you don't talk the way I talk, because you've got some sinful issues, you've got some issues. I'm just going to I'm just going to love you from distance, you know. That's not what we should do. Paul's desire for them is to see them face to face. To have sweet fellowship with them, to embrace them, to have physical dinner with them, to proclaim Christ with them. How do I know that? Chapter 1 verse 8 Paul's already told us that. He says, "For God is my witness, Could you say this? For God is my witness how I long to see you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Could you imagine what this church can be like all the more if we say, I yearn for you. Not just yearn for you, like a father yearns for a son, but with the affections of Jesus Christ. The affections of Christ, the Christ who came on earth, became flesh, dwelled amongst us, we beheld his glory, was nailed to a tree, he died and rose again for that church. That's affection. That's the affection that we want for one another. 
Put yourself out there and love the brethren this way. But Paul cannot help himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I yearn to see, what does he say? What does he say next, brothers? My joy. They are my joy. The fourth thing is my joy. Think of the circumstances of Paul. He is under house arrest, perhaps to chain to two guards. <clears throat> he could think of lots of things that could bring him joy. One, can you get rid of these two guys from me? Some freedom, some good clothes, some good food, Italian food, perhaps lasagna, not Egyptian food. I don't like Egyptian food. It could be anything. Some privacy. And yet what does Paul say? No, no, no. He says, I love you, my beloved family. I long to see you. And guess what my joy is? You are. You are my joy. He could have been depressed. He could have been stressed out. He, he, he could have said, hey, man, I'm in chain. No. But whenever Paul thought of this church, his heart leaped with joy. We see that through this epistle. When Paul prayed for the church, he prayed with joy. He had joy seeing them grow in the faith of Christ. He had joy when he was being poured out as a drink offering upon a sacrifice of their service. Paul had joy when they were in one mind. Paul had joy, had joy and joy in them. Paul's delight was so much towards these believers. The only person I know from Scripture that he leaped in his mother's womb out of joy was John the Baptist. But if I can think of the joy that Paul had in like manner, in his own heart, he leaped for joy for the brethren. Wow, what an encouragement. You can persecute me. You can kill me. You can chain me to two guards under house arrest, but the heart-flowing rivers of joy that Christ has given me by the Holy Spirit, it flows to my brethren, and they are my joys. It's not the love that God gives all of us by the Spirit, love, joy, and peace. Is it not? Is that not something that we must cultivate? You are my joy. You are my heavenly joy. You are the river of joy for me. Paul's joy for these brethren was not based on status. He didn't know half of them, if not more. It was not based on who they were. They sat in the front or they sat in the back or they wore a suit. He had joy in them because they were in relationship with Christ. And Christ was the head of all of them, including Paul. And then he continues. I love this. The fifth thing for us. Look at what he says. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and what? My crown. You are my crown. Oh, that we would understand what this means. My crown. I don't know how many of you have studied Greek. I am married to a Greek. 
And I can honestly tell you what this word means and I'll explain it to you in a second. There are two words in the Greek. One is Stephanos, which is this one here. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. I'm sure I'm going to be told that that's not the way you pronounce it, but that's okay. But there's another one that is for a kingly, a royal king where he's crowned. It's got a diadem. That's, that's what we call a diadem. That is used for Christ in Revelation chapter 19. That, that's not what's used here. This is the word Stephanos, which was given to people who will run a race, and at the end of a race in, in, in the Olympics that they had at that time, they will get crowned with this uh, leafy thing on their heads, and that was their price. That was them achieving a great achievement. Well, can I tell the story? It's off the notes, so I just, I just want to make sure that my beloved wife is okay with this. So when I was married, I was not a Christian. And I got married in the Greek Orthodox Church. And I, I wondered, I was not a Christian, I didn't believe in God, and I wondered what on earth is happening to me right now. And the priest went past, my wife and I, with these two crowns, and they were doing this kind of stuff, you know, and putting it on our heads. And... and a, Lo and behold, it's supposed to, it's supposed to symbolize unity. It's supposed to be that you become one. But in our scripture, for, I don't even know what to do with that information. I just wanted to tell you. I'm not even sure why I brought that up, but it's off the notes. You see, that's why I don't go off the notes half of the time. It just goes off the tantrum. But having said that, what's happened here, what the Apostle Paul is saying to these believers, that people run and they receive this perishable wreath, this perishable crown upon their heads and upon their heads they think they've achieved something a prize they think that that crown makes them joyful you know what paul says you are that crown on my head the greatest achievement the greatest joy the greatest prize that i have is you wow can we think the same and say with the Apostle Paul, Brother, I love you. Uh, you are my joy and you are the crown upon my head. Nothing else matters. You are the crown upon my head. You are my greatest accomplishment. I wear that crown of you upon my head with humble, humble, humble Submission to God because God is at work in you. Oh, what a joy. One day the Apostle Paul knows he's going to receive the unfading crown of glory. But for now, you are my glory. In fact, you are my glory and you will be my glory for eternity. Because I know my labor did not go in vain. You are growing. You've got problems. You've got issues. But you are my crown. I can tell you this for myself. I'll quote the Bible in 3 John 4. I, I, me, Ralph, have no greater joy than this than to hear my children, my beloved brethren, my brothers and sisters in Christ to do what? Walk in the truth. I have no greater joy next to my own salvation than will never be taken away. Joy comes from the brethren where I see Christ at work in them. This is, this is what Paul is saying about this crown. But we must examine ourselves. 
What's our crown this morning? What's the, what's the highest achievement in your life that you're looking for that brings you this kind of joy? Is it your husband, your child, your job, your computer? You fill in the blanks, whatever it is. Paul says, all those things are rubbish. I count them as rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. And why? How do I know Jesus Christ? Through my family in Christ. Now that Paul has laid this foundation to encourage the souls of the Philippians, now he says, brethren, in this way, stand firm. Stand firm. In which way? In the way I've just told you. Run the race. Look at godly example. Go back to chapter 3, verse 12 onwards. Remember who you are in Christ. Reach for the goal. Brothers and sisters, is your home here or there? We need to remind ourselves we are sojourners. There's nothing here. The Job himself said, Naked I came and naked I shall return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. May we say this with one another and not get, get caught up with worldly crowns, worldly things that shake us about and we cannot stand firm. Hear this word. Let me just break it down a little bit for you. I'm sorry to do this to you, but I have to because it's too beautiful. Stand firm is in the present tense. Do you know what that means? It is continuous. Paul is not telling the church, just stand firm now and then stop next week. And stand firm sometimes. It is a continuous action. It's in an active voice. What does that mean? It means, brothers and sisters, for you to actively do this. You, Paul said, in, before that, in chapter 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You work it out. Do it. For it is God that works through you. But we must move. It's not passive. But it's also an imperative. What's that mean? It's a command. Paul is commanding the church. And we are all commanded to stand firm. And it's also the second person plural. What does it mean? It means you and you, and you, and you, and you. Every single believer must stand firm. But now we want to understand what on earth does this word stand firm actually mean? Well, it was used as a military term. It is, a, it is as if a soldier will stand firm and not move from his post. He will stand firm and hold his position so that the enemies will not enter in even at a point that he will sacrifice his own life and every single one of us here for whatever gift that God has given you availability ability strength stand firm stand firm the apostle Paul wrote to Timothy suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ and so Paul is saying to the church who believe in him, guard the truth, be zealous in the truth, 
Live sacrificially. Stand firm, brothers and sisters. Even if it costs your own life. Protect one another so that falsehood doesn't come in. That false brethren don't attack. Bad examples don't come in. Stand firm in your convictions. Stand firm under persecution. Stand firm. Stand firm. But then he says, stand firm. How? In the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. This little word here, in, I just want to share with you. It speaks a whole lot of truth that we do not see that in English. This word in speaks of being connected. Being inside, being near, it speaks of abiding in Christ, in Him. Stick with Him. Cling to Jesus' hope. Cling to what's waiting for you. Trust in His might. Rest in His arms. Behold His face. In Him, remember His suffering. That's how you stand firm. Remember his resurrection. That's how you stand firm. Remember he's coming back. That's how you stand firm. Remember what awaits for you. Remember, remember Christ. We only stand firm with the strength that only the Lord supplies. So we must be in the word. And we stand firm as soldiers because why? Because Christ Jesus is the chief commander of the platoon, which we are as Christians. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. So let me bring this as as an application. Let me begin first and foremost for those of you who are not yet born of God, who have not yet received the Spirit of God, who do not have a heart for Christ. If you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus, then the joy and the crown of your life is only temporal. It's only what you have. You know, I've often heard people say this to unbelievers. Enjoy this because this is heaven for you because there awaits for you a hell. I kind of understand what they're saying. But let me tell you, if you know heaven, this is not heaven. And if you know hell, you will not tell them this is a heaven for them. You will say, repent. And believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Surrender your life to him, lest you perish in his way when he comes back. You would not tell them, enjoy your life. Why would we do that? No. You say, whatever you've got is only temporal. Whatever God has blessed you with will perish in a way, and so will you in an eternal torment. Let me just read to you in this wonderful epistle on what you can understand about this Jesus that laid down his life for you. I think Brother Samuel literally prayed this this morning about Jesus himself. He said this, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself 
taken on the form of a bond servant and being made in likeness of man, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The only crown that you want to meditate upon, my unbelieving friend, this morning is this, that God wore that crown of thorn that you may have life. That God was nailed to a tree in the person of Jesus Christ so that you would not have to suffer. What a great God. Isaiah says, come to me all the ends of the earth and be saved for there is no other God amongst men by which you must be saved. No other name but the name of Jesus Christ. And to you, my brothers and sisters, we got to learn how do we approach one another when we want to encourage one another to run this race together, to run towards the celestial city, what gives us joy? Are we too busy with our cars and our homes and our backyards? Yes, we've spoken a million times those things are not sinful. But what brings us joy? What brings us joy? How do you personally see the church? How do you, brothers and sisters, love the brethren? Do you make an effort to love the brethren? Do you love them just in word or also in deed? Paul shows a kind of love that is out of this world for this church. That's the love that we want to actually have towards one another. The love that Christ has given us when he gave us the new birth, it must flow out of us. If it doesn't flow out of us, we need to examine what's the blockage? What's the issue? What's the problem that this love is not coming out where I can say, brother, stand firm. Sister, stand firm in the Lord. And encourage them like Paul did. We must love like the Father loved the Son. How often do we quote verses like this? And I'm going to bring it to a conclusion. We love these verses. John 13, 12, remembering the Lord Jesus when he washed their feet, taken his garments, he reclined at the table and said to them, Do you know what I've done to you does that not humble you does that not make you see how much we fall short of loving one another but we need to read what else jesus said he said you call me teacher and you are right for i am if then i the teacher washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet i forgave you I showed you the example of service, then do likewise. He said, no greater commandment than this. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Even as I loved you, you ought to love one another. In a world, brothers and sisters, here, so here it is. We've got a compassionate Christian. I pray that God has spoken to you this morning to be a compassionate Christian. Because that's what the Apostle Paul is showing us. 
But we live in such a world that is driven by self-wills, self-determination, self-reliance, self-centeredness, self-exaltation, self-achievement. It's very hard to say you are my crown. When everything is about self, I, me, and what stops us from having this kind of love? It's very, very simple. Are you ready for it? Okay. You love yourself too much. You love yourself too much. When I say you, I am pointing ten fingers back at me. We love ourselves too much. And yet, let me finish with this. Just from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Beautiful just so that we can get maybe a little bit more of a clarity how this Apostle Paul had such love, such affection. How can he say that you're my joy? You are my crown. How can Paul say these things? I want the same so that we can stand firm. Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, we read the wonderful chapter of love. Love is patient. How many of you say I've arrived to being patient? Whoops, sorry. Love is patient, brothers and sisters. Be patient. Love is kind. I It's not jealous. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. You know the rest of it. I'll leave that with you to read on your own. So let me just read this. Jude says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, because that's what it comes down to, all this is done in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his holy of his glory, blameless, with great joy, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, your truth, Lord, is encouraging and challenging so many areas. Our Lord, I pray that this church will be moved and that we can say, my beloved brethren, my joy and crown. Oh, how I yearn to see you. I want you. I desire to fellowship with you and to put you above everything else, even above my own life. For no greater, no greater love is any man than this, that he will lay down his life for the brethren. Father, the Apostle Paul was not just a great theologian, a great expositor of the word. He was a great man who showed us how to live out the word in practical sense. May this truth, Lord, resonate in our hearts. And those who are not born of God, Father, May you give them no rest and no joy until rest and joy are found at the foot of the cross. Amen.
Well, as the service concludes, let us, as it says in that last part of the verse, let's stand firm and let's do so by singing this well-known song. Let's stand and sing in Christ alone. Me home here in the power.
Jesus. Amen. Let's enjoy some fellowship, everyone.